0: I'm Chris Cutler. This is Probes number 20. Of all the exogenous musical cultures that impacted on Western music, it was Indian classical music that brought the greatest changes in both thinking and playing across all forms of Western music, from Messia and Lamont Young to John Coltrane and The Beatles. When India gained its independence in 1948, the British Nationality Act gave its former subjects the right to live and work in the United Kingdom. This fact, and Britain's desperate need for labour after the Second World War, brought significant numbers of immigrants from both the Caribbean and the Indian subcontinent, amongst them the violinist John Mayer, who arrived from Calcutta in 1952 to study composition at the Royal Academy of Music. To help pay his way, he took a job as a violinist with the London Philharmonic Orchestra, but his main ambition was to compose, and in particular to bring classical Hindustani and Western orchestral music together in a practical form. His groundbreaking dance suite for sitar, flute, tabla, tambura, and symphony orchestra, premiered by the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic in 1958, earned him an instant reputation as a man to watch. Although this was the first time Indian and European classical instruments had been united in a formal composition, its impact remained limited, because it was neither recorded nor performed again elsewhere. This is why it's so often been overlooked, and why many sources still credit the American composer Alan Hovhaness as author of the first work for sitar and symphony orchestra, in spite of the fact that Meyer's work predated it by some twelve years. As it happens, Havanis' piece, although written in 1969, wasn't actually performed until 2008. I said that Meyer's dance suite wasn't recorded, but it turns out, happily, that that's wrong, and there are still fragments of a private recording in Meyer's personal archive that his son, Jonathan Meyer, was able to unearth for this programme. This is probably the first time that this music has been heard outside the family for 60 years. In 1965, Ahmet Ertegun, the Turkish founder and president of Atlantic Records, heard a short composition Meyer had written for a one-off jazz compilation, and was so impressed that he proposed Meyer unite his Indian ensemble with the British jazz quintet led by Jamaican saxophonist Joe Harriet. Both men agreed, and their double quintet, later rechristened Indo-Jazz Fusions, released its first record in September 1966. Here's an extract from Raga Mega. guitar was already quite well known to the general public by this time, because George Harrison had used one in John Lennon's song Norwegian Wood the year before. And this is almost certainly why Ertigan made his proposal to Harriet and Meyer in the first place. I won't play Norwegian Wood, it's too well known, and Harrison was just getting to grips with the instrument when he made it. But here's Love You Too, recorded a year later for the LP Revolver. together in america the 1917 immigration law had imposed an asiatic barred zone that severely limited all immigration from india but in 1965 new legislation saw numbers dramatically increase in the same year the museum of modern art hosted the living arts of india festival in new york The American violinist Yehudi Menuhin invited Ravi Shankar to perform, but for family reasons Shankar declined and proposed his brother-in-law, the Bangladeshi Sarod player Ali Akbar Khan, instead. It turned out to be a busy and disproportionately influential visit. On arrival, Khan's trio Sarod, Tabla and Tambura made a national television appearance Introduced by Menuhin, who gave a short talk about the instruments and the musical form. Then, on the day before the MoMA concert, they recorded the world's first Indian classical music LP. Lamont Young said that when he heard the opening six-second tambura drone on the radio, he had to run straight to a record shop to buy the LP, and subsequently... As we know, he made the exploration of drones and overtones central to his own compositional work. And finally, the trio's two public performances were very positively reviewed, with special note taken of the music's improvisational affinities with jazz. A year later, Ravi Shankar was himself on tour. His American concerts, although modestly attended, were packed with avant-garde jazz musicians. While in Britain, he performed for the first time with Yehudi Menuhin, with whom he also recorded an LP, released in 1966 as West Meets East. It was this experience, and in anticipation of future collaborations, that Menuhin commissioned a suite for sitar, violin and orchestra from the Armenian-American composer Alan Hovhaness. And although Hovhaness wrote the piece, Menuhin and Shankar never got around to performing it, and it remained on the shelf for 40 years before it was finally recorded with different soloists in 2008. It's a persuasive work, and no short extract can do it justice. Here's a sample. Akbar Khan was making his New York demo. One of Ravi Shankar's ex-students, the master Hindustani sitarist and tabla player Harihar Rao, was studying in the ethnomusicology department at UCLA and teaching sitar privately on the side. Jazz trumpeter Don Ellis came to study with him, and in 1964 they co-founded the Hindustani Jazz Sextet, a mix of saxophone, piano, vibraphone, bass, drums, trumpet, sitar and tabla. The vibraphone player was Emil Richards, who will meet again in another program. So two years before the Maya-Harriet double quintet, the Hindustani Jazz Sextet was playing high-profile concerts in California, and opening for the Grateful Dead. But again, because they were never recorded, they had little wider impact. Fortunately for us, three previously unknown recordings of a 1964 concert at the Lighthouse Café were recently uploaded to YouTube, so we can have some idea of what they sounded like. This is Bombay Bossa Nova, which is not really a Bossa Nova, and it's all in 21.8. In the mid-1970s, the peripatetic Bavarian rock band Embryo, another group who seldom receives the attention they deserve, made several trips to India, one of them lasting for nine months, where they met and worked with the tabla virtuoso Trilok Gertu, who later became a fixture in the East-West jazz community, and the Karnataka College of Percussion, both of whom owe their careers outside India to this meeting. Embryo also experimented with a wide variety of exotic instruments, and here's a brief extract from New Riding, made in 1975, which features a fine and well-integrated sitar solo by co-founder and guitarist Roman Bunker. Ali Akbar Khan had come to New York, it was to perform Indian classical music. That was his only interest. And when he returned in 1965, it was to teach. But by 1967, he had established his own Ali Akbar College of Music in California, to which he invited over the years virtually every prominent name in North Indian music. Intrigued by the spiritual and improvisational aspects of the discipline, the saxophonist and fellow academic John Handy enrolled to study. The two men found they had a lot in common, and after some private sessions decided to perform together at a Berkeley jazz club. This was the first time any Indian classical musician had improvised in public with a jazz musician, and it led to an invitation to perform at the Monterey Jazz Festival, after which the two men continued to work together whenever their schedules permitted. It was a unique meeting of styles. Here's the beginning of Ganesha's Jubilee Dance from the LP Karuna Supreme, which they recorded in Germany in 1976. <laughs> course almost uniquely of all exotic instruments, sitars found their way into a huge number of pop records. Everyone from the Rolling Stones to the Monkees, the Box Tops to the Kinks, Lemon Pipers to Elvis Presley found a place for one somewhere, at least while the fashion lasted but I'd like to return to the incredible string band since they played almost nothing but exotic instruments on which, amazingly, both of them seemed interchangeably proficient. There's nothing Indian or even exotic about the way Mike Heron uses the sitar here. It's just the right colour and it fits the song.
1: Oh, sleep I'll give you my eyes for the colors that rise as time's echoes reflect on your waters.
0: In case you thought I was making it up about Elvis, here he is singing the country standard, Snowbird.
1: Beneath this snowy mantle, cold and clean, the unborn grass lies waiting for its cold to turn to green. The snowbird sings a song he always sings. And speaks to me of flowers that will bloom again in spring.
0: The moment passed. After a few years of intense exposure, the sitar fell back out of sight. But here's one late anomaly. This is Gabriel Roth, alias Bill Ravi Harris, from a CD that mixes sitar with late 60s funk. And although its fanciful sleeve notes date it back as a great lost album from the days of fading psychedelia because it wouldn't make sense to make a record like this today. It was in fact made, to the best of my knowledge, in 1996 just for the hell of it. This is Ravi and the Prophets playing The Meters, Sissy Strut." Just sitars, of course. Tablas also found their way into a number of hybrid contexts. And since they were virtuoso instruments and difficult to play plausibly without study, it tended to be classical master players who were inducted into various hybrid projects. Here's Zakir Hussain, for instance, who we heard already with John Handy and Ali Akbar Khan, this time playing in guitarist John McLaughlin's Shakti. This is from La Danse de Bonheur. <laughs> Here, much later in 2000, when the American bassist and producer Bill Laswell linked tablas and electronica in his Tabla Beat Science project, again featuring, in fact formed around, the tabla player Zakir Hussain. Laswell, like Don Cherry and Hermie Mann, the string band and Mickey Hart, was wildly Catholic in his influences and probed and mixed all manner of musics to bring widely different disciplines together. For this project, he started by recording Hussein alone, and then composed electronic beats around him. As the idea took shape, he invited three other tablists, his long-time collaborator, the British-born Karsh Kale, the Indian Trilok Goethe, who after Embryo had worked amongst others with Oregon, John McLaughlin, John Cherry and Terj Ripdal, and the Londoner Talvin Singh, himself a central player in the fusion of Indian classical music with drum and bass. He'd already worked with Bjork, Sun Ra, Madonna and countless others, including Laswell himself. Singh had invited Laswell to play on his own Mercury Prize-winning CD, OK, the year before. The result of all Laswell's labours was Tala Matrix. Here's an extract from the track Palmistry, featuring Kash Kale and Zakir Hussain. Thank you. The Italian-American saxophonist Charlie Mariano cut his teeth in the Stan Kenton Orchestra and then worked with Quincy Jones, Shelley Mann and Charlie Mingus. In 1967, he was invited to Kuala Lumpur to work with the Malaysian Radio Orchestra and there, at a Hindu temple, he heard for the first time a Nagaswaram. That's a South Indian double reed instrument, not dissimilar to the Iranian and North Indian Chennai. He stayed on to study for six months after his radio engagement, and subsequently returned every year. When he joined Embryo in the mid-70s, he found the instrument a perfect fit. And here it is on Parvati's dance, taken from one of Mariano's own releases, Helen Twelve Trees, recorded in 1976. Here's its North Indian counterpart, the Chennai. In fact, two of them, which George Harrison uses on the track Microbes, taken from his unjustly neglected 1968 soundtrack for the film Wonderwall, released a decade earlier. Of course, there's Alice Coltrane, effortlessly synthesizing her Western and Eastern influences in *Journey in Sachidananda*, written for jazz trio, harp, tambura, and small percussion, recorded in 1970. again, the great pharaoh Sanders, a longtime associate of John and Alice Contraines, whose exotic importations are often downplayed because of the impact he made in other, more mainstream areas. But for several years in the 1970s, Sanders drew freely on whatever instruments took his fancy, creating unique musical environments, one LP at a time. This extract is from Wisdom Through Music, made in 1973. <laughs> I think it's fair to say that what black musicians drew from Africa and North Africa in the 20 years between 1956 and 1976 tended to be more ideological and timbral than deeply rooted in African tradition, but that those drawn from India were almost always anchored in the disciplines indigenous to the music itself. Indian music had a lasting and profound impact on western music in nearly all its forms but influence is a topic for another programme. Here, we're trying to stay with the instruments. So I'll close this circle by coming back briefly to the drums. Here's Per Chernberg, a Swedish percussionist and globalist, using a free mixture of the world's percussion to animate a 9-8 marimba ostinato. said I would return to Emil Richards. He was the vibraphone player in Ellison Rao's Hindustani jazz sextet, who went on to collect on his travels and learn to play an enormous variety of the world's percussion, which he then introduced into every imaginable musical context. In constant demand as a session player, he wound up working with everyone from Marvin Gaye to Frank Zappa, Frank Sinatra to Charlie Mingus, Henry Mancini to the Beach Boys. He was also a close friend and played many concerts with microtonalist Harry Parch, as well as being a member of the infamous Wrecking Crew, the elite First Call L.A. session musicians who played anonymously on almost everyone's hits in the 1960s. Over the last 60 years, he's appeared on thousands of recordings, including some 1,400 film soundtracks. If you needed exotic percussion, Emil Richards was the man to call and everybody did. Here he is playing uncredited on one of the most radical pieces of stylistic and instrumental pop collage to come out of the 1960s, a record sadly often overlooked because serious commentators are embarrassed by its form and especially its texts. Written by Mort Garson, another man with an extraordinary CV which is well worth looking into, it brings together not only percussion instruments from all corners of the globe, but rock rhythm section, a harpsichord, and the first appearance on record of the Moog modular synthesizer, played here by Paul Beaver. The thing that makes Cosmic Sounds really remarkable is that it was recorded in real time. Richards apparently had to set up islands of percussion all around the studio, and then run from one to another as the song progressed. I'll play an extract from Pisces, because it includes the water chimes, four large brass discs that Richards had specially made that are played by being struck and then lowered into tubs of water to create a distinctive metallic glissando.
1: Seven days in the week Pisces enters each one gently careful not to bruise a single second from the sea, a soft white carpet for Pisces
0: to walk upon. And this is from his own Journey to Bliss LP, released in 1968, the third in a series in which he probed Indian-inspired irregular meters and played multiple percussion instruments piled up in layers. Before we move on, I just want to mention two critical figures, both of them students of many and different disciplines. The first is Don Cherry, who became increasingly marginalised because he was considered too eclectic and hard to categorise. The second, Herbie Mann, who was sidelined because he was thought to be too much of a populist. Don Cherry's studies were wide-ranging, the most eclectic of his generation. Over a lifetime, he brought African, European, Arabian, and Asian instruments, as well as aspects of their musical discourses, into a unique synthesis. At the same time, he moved from being a member of the jazz avant-garde aristocracy, working with all the leading figures of the 60s new thing, to being a respected but marginalised maverick, playing programmes of wild and unpredictable diversity. We heard him in Probes 17, working with Western instruments and the Balinese gamelan, something almost no one else has successfully achieved. And this extract is from Mahakali, which ends up as a raucous rock fest, but starts, as you'll hear, very sedately. Herbert J. Solomon, on the other hand, known better as Herbie Mann, was never part of the avant-garde. A white, mainstream bop flautist, he released a string of popular records, mostly groove-based, and notched up one hit after another. At the same time, he was a tireless explorer of what we now call world music, and supported a great number of very left-field performers, like Sonny Sharrock and Steve Marcus. First he was a pioneer of Afro-Cuban music, then Brazilian. He was an early adopter of the bossa nova, after which, influenced by Abdul Malik, it was music from the Middle East, and later still, Japan. Man mostly mined for what he could make into quasi-exotic easy listening, but he used the proper instruments and he worked with local musicians and he based what he did on study and listening. He dumbed down enough, you could say, but he always left a seam of pure awe in place. This is from Wailing Dervishes, a concert recording made in 1967, with Charles Ganymian, who we met in the last programme, playing the Oud. And even more adventurously, from 1976, Move Over Blues, which was recorded in Japan with Minoru Muraoka and his New Dimension group, an ensemble that had been mixing jazz and Japanese traditional music since 1970. We'll be staying in Japan in our next programme and then moving on to China. I'm Chris Cutler. This has been Probes.